Today is Sunday, August 2nd, 2015, and this is episode 126 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight from the wonderful, extravagant Callet Estate is uh, Mr. Andrew Callet. It's very weird being in person for this. Like, I can't be, like, browsing porn while we're doing the show or anything. I know. We had to wear pants and everything. but uh, but hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm I'm good. It's uh, Sunday comes around way too quick though. I, I completely agree with that. All right. So uh, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer, past, present, or future. True enough. All right. So uh, we have been kicking the can down the road on this one topic for a long time and uh we're finally going to cover it it's a big topic yeah yeah so uh maybe, so th- maybe we could take it in sections oh oh i'm here all week that was, that was uh try the veal yeah so so the the topic is is network segmentation and actually it's, it's probably been uh i don't know like four or five months ago now at this point um but uh, I, what what tweaked my interest a little bit is a post or a t- tweet by Dave Kennedy, where he said the number one recommendation for companies as a whole is to segment your networks. Pop one box and the full network access is ridiculous. And that 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 spawned a whole bunch of discussion back and forth uh, after that tweet, and. It, some things like, um, particularly something that you know, I, we've talked a little bit about it on the show before, but segmentation isn't necessarily only about networks. It's also about permissions. And so you know, they were talking about, in some of the ensuing discussions, they were talking about, um, you know, domain administrators should have their own set of PCs. And someone else said, well, you know, actually, Maybe they should be those domain admin PCs should be virtualized off on a dedicated network where only you know, that's the only place they can log in from. And I think uh, Dave actually responded back saying that they don't recommend using domain admin accounts at all. That you in fact have a very very narrowly permissioned you know, utility accounts for mm-hmm. server admins or desktop admins and things like that. Uh, but you still kind of layer on top of that those some of those other best practices like you know limiting where your server admins can uh, can log in from. So you know, that's the that's the the introduction to the topic. So first off, let's clarify that this is Dave Kennedy of Trusted Sec, who also runs DerbyCon, who recently crushed my soul by denying my talk. Oh dang. <laughs> But to be fair, I don't think it was just him. To right? be fair, I did not submit an outline properly, which apparently they use to really decide talks. And they also said something about how they use whether or not the talk has been presented at other conferences. But they didn't say if that was a pro or a con. I actually need to ask him. Like, is it a good thing that's been presented someplace else or is it a bad thing? I don't know. 
Anyway, and it was also a very, you know, it's a talk I gave at, at B-Sides Atlanta about, you know, not being a burden on your loved ones when you die. So it's not a very happy talk. What about not being a burden on your loved ones when you're alive? Uh, How about that? I can't even get that one right. Okay. So I just thought I would share my pain. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So to me, this fundamentally comes down to the concept of we are assuming a breach will happen and we want to minimize the capabilities of that breach to spread. Yes. And of the bad yes. guys. And we want to give them more hurdles to jump through. Right. So I'm all for segmentation. Love the concept you're, of segmentation. You're very pro-segmentation. I'm very much all about keeping things apart. Mm. I don't want my data to be free. <laughs> but and, there's lots of trade-offs. Right. The more you segment, the more complicated your administrative overhead is. And frankly, your segmentation technology, which most of the time is probably a firewall, you've got to have really good firewall admins who are really good at working with your developers and your administrators about understanding how things really flow in your environment. Because it doesn't do you any good if you segment, you know, let's just say at a network layer, two subnets and then leave wide open path between them for any service. That doesn't help you. So let's be fair up front. There is a cost to doing this. Uh, but I think that cost is worth paying. But you really have to have sharp people and understand it's going to make your life a lot more complicated and it's going to take a lot longer and you won't be as agile or nimble uh, because you've really got to think through as you roll things out. Yeah. You know, the other, the other thing I'll say is I think fundamentally a lot of people have um, you know, don't fully understand what it means to segment. You know, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen shock and horror uh, when when people have realized that an attacker has crossed from one network into another where they thought segmentation existed and and by segmentation in their mind they believe you know the the minimum number of services between them right, right? and and don't understand that it, in many cases it can be depending on the situation right can be pretty trivial to get from one network to another. And so I think it's also very important as you embark on a segmentation strategy that you really understand the, the different failure modes. Yeah, I think a lot of people just assume everything is going to behave as designed. Right. And then there's all those little exceptions. Like, I need my vulnerability management scanner to scan this environment, so I'm going to stand up a VM or a host with eight legs go into each of those because I don't want to scan through the firewall. Oh, look at that nice little bridge you just built between your segments. Right. Or I need to do backups, and we don't want backups to run across the firewall. So I stood up a backup network and extra NICs and all of my servers. Nothing stops a bad guy from going after that segment. Right. Or a management network. Or, sure. Yes, secondary management network. Or, yep. And... You know, this is where I think really good internal pen testing and smart, you know, kind of threat profiling come to play. But it really drives your admins crazy when you start poking holes in the best practices they've grown up with for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a difficult trade off. But it goes far beyond just the network layer and the services layer. You know, how do you segment Active Directory properly? when all your servers need to talk to 
the AD server, and all the AD servers need to talk to each other. Right. At least that's the theory. That's what everybody thinks. Exactly. Uh, and and I think you also have to. You know, it's a very complicated question because, and at some at some level, you have to make a value judgment about it. Just to carry you on, carry on with the Active Directory example, you have to make a value judgment of: is it, you know, is it is it more important to get the benefits derived from Active Directory on, let's say, an external server network, mm-hmm. or? Is the or is the isolation that you get by having those servers on the external network kind of be standalone, um, or do you have a fully separated uh, Active Directory environment, one for the outside, one for the inside, and that has its own problems? Yeah, right. Because Active Directory, especially in an environment, and and I, you know, I I have been over the years very very harsh on Active Directory, and the reason is. Um, I I see people implementing it really badly over and over and over again, and I see it badly being, from a security perspective. Yes, yeah. but good from a manageability perspective. Right, and and I think that's the that's the problem that I have seen where you have lots of organizations who think they are doing a great thing by implementing Active Directory because they think about security from a very narrow perspective and they think about it from the perspective of okay if i have everything connected to my active directory i can uniformly apply policies i can very easily manage uh, identities mm-hmm. and you know so if somebody leaves my business i can click one button and i i'm very sure that that person's accounts are disabled wherever they exist that sounds like good things right however <laughs> They don't. They don't understand that the the flip side of this is that once an attacker gets in, it is a very strong enabler, as Mr. Kennedy is alluding to here, that allows an attacker to almost trivially move throughout your environment. And I've I've seen this an, an unfortunate number of times. And when you look back at at most of the the major breaches that have been publicly disclosed, Active Directory is a common thread in, in many of them. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I don't mean to just be banging on Active Directory, but I think this is one of those ones where we generally don't do a good job of understanding the failure modes associated with it in the context of segmenting your, your network. Well, I don't think it's very common that security architects get deep into the Active Directory conversation either. True. And it's also something that, you know, it's probably been there for a long time for most organizations and is not really open to, I mean, unless you're reevaluating privileged identity management and, uh, you know, kind of account vaulting and all that kind of stuff, it's not often something people even think of an option to revisit and re-architect. Well, that's, a, that's a good point. It's a very good point. Um, there were some, there were some of, some, suggestions in here that I wanted to cover. And I know we we talked a little bit about this a couple of years back. There was a group in Japan who had published a best practice document on designing Active Directory and how to segment permissions up and things like that. Right. And I'll see if I can dig that out and put the link in there because I think it's still, uh, as far as I know, still, still pretty um, applicable. 
Uh, but there are there were some good ideas in here about segmenting, you know, isolating your administrative functions onto dedicated systems. I really liked that idea. So you have basically your administrators have kind of normal work PCs, and then they RDP in or or you know maybe a KVM into uh, a, a set of systems on a dedicated network that has some kind of you know special isolation or 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 segmented in some way hopefully with like a two factor right you know uh, re- requirement to get into it but as you mentioned the downside is that now if you know if you have a 24 by 7 you know on site operation center i suppose this is a little bit easier discussion but you know if you're if you have people who are on call at home and something goes you know, if something goes wrong, you know, that, that becomes a bit of a liability. Yeah. You're adding a lot of complexity. Right. And complexity that may require them to drive in to the office. So fundamentally, we're talking about a trade-off between security and ease of IT. Right. You know, for a lot of these. I had a conversation with a buddy of mine the other day that this actually came up and they were looking at building out a new environment and they were having conversations with other folks in IT internally and, and they were proposing standing up a, a firewall that had multiple legs off of it and having traffic go between servers through the back through this firewall. And I the IT guys are coming back saying, why would you want to do that? You've got it behind a firewall, PCI satisfied. And so I think we were also fighting some of that, that you know, folks who are not deep into the security world but are in IT – are driven by compliance when they have to be and often think that, that is good enough. And yeah, so basically if if uh if things needed to be that complicated why do the regulations and not not require explicitly require it. And, and I think and somewhat rightly so in general if you're an IT system in or a network admin you want less complexity because it makes your life more difficult. Right. Uh you know, and it's also when you've got security guys coming and saying, "Well, we're trying to stop lateral movement." There is an implicit understanding that that your stuff's going to get broken into when you say that, which I think some folks in the system in and network administration world may bristle at that concept subconsciously. Mm-hmm. That what are you talking about? We got defenses. We're fine. Right. What, what, why are you calling my baby ugly? Yeah, but I think security architecture as a whole has now gone to a point where we're assuming compromise and trying to minimize that spread. But this impacts almost everything when you think about it in how you do business function, how you administer your applications, how you do account management, how you build your network. You know, another good one is, hey, you've got a bunch of remote offices hooked up via uh, you know, VPNs or MPLS or lease lines or whatever, do you segment those off to prevent a spread? Do you segment your users from each other? Do you set up your switches so that a box on that segment can't talk to another box on that segment but can only talk to the default route? Uh, do you have a need for your boxes to talk to each other at, you know, the workstations? Right. Uh, but all these things add complexity and potentially get in the way of certain business functions. True. So it's about finding that I can't, balance. I can't, you know, open my open a file share on my right my, my laptop and you know 
And, but you know, the, I think it it also goes, um, you know, as, as you were mentioning, it goes pretty broad because we know, for instance, with Target in mm-hmm. in Home Depot, uh, there were third parties accessing, and I think, uh, in fact, OPM, right, as is, is, is it turns out, you have third parties who are, you know, more increasingly needing to communicate with your systems. How do you isolate those? How do you, how do you, and I don't know that there's a great single unified answer here, right? But it's, it's certainly going to somewhat be specific to whatever technologies you have in place. But, you know, one of the, as an example, I know we, we talked about the FFIC's cyber assessment tool and mm-hmm. which is an interesting document. And I noticed in there, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, right? But there's a, uh, one of their maturity level assessments has a question about whether you use two-factor authentication to isolate your, or to not isolate, wrong word, but to um, mediate access to third party third parties getting into your network. Right, and it, I mean it's very explicit, which um, which I'm wondering if that's a you know a learning from from some of these recent big breaches. You know, here's the other thing I think about too. You know, you think about something like Target, which it seemed like a really minor situation, you know, a really minor connection. And if you've only got a handful of, of really good security architects, can you afford for the business to slow down for them to look at every single connection as they stand up and dig deep into it and understand every opportunity to break out of that connection? Obviously, I think the answer is probably no, and that's the you know therein lies therein lies the the, the big problem here that I think CISOs have is how do you reasonably assess the risk and respond to it and not stand in the way of getting things done? Well, you buy a blinky box. Well, that's certainly the way the industry has has evolved, isn't it? Right. Um, you know the, the the thing, and we've talked a little bit about this before, and I suspect there are movements afoot to do this, but it, it seems to me, you know, every time a civil engineer or an architect wants to design a new building or a bridge or something like that, they don't start from nothing, right? There's a lot of tried and true kind of best practice design patterns. I know everybody likes to make fun of best practice, right? But, you know, de- design patterns that yeah. are... No, these they're engineering problems that are considered solved problems. Right. And you pull that solved problem solution off the shelf. And you stick it in Yeah. Yeah. And you copy and paste and and off you go. And it just it seems like that's an opportunity for the not even the IT security field, but the IT field. Well why do we avoid it? Are we just that arrogant? I don't know. We think we've got to do it our I mean I, so so Getting into, I mean, this is kind of a, this is now a psychological discussion, right? <laughs> because I, I, I really think a big answer or a big portion of the answer to that question is that there's a very low barrier to entry in IT. Right. Right. You can. And high demand. And high demand. And so, yeah. you know, you can very easily, the average person, I did it, you did it. You know, many of us did it. We just cobbled together some crap in our basement. We started learning it and, you know, we made mistakes. We, you know, we grew in our field and 
you know, that I think that's a big, a big part of it, right? So I have my way, you know, that the, my experience informs how I design mm-hmm. things. Your experience informs how you design things, and that's kind of how it is. I remember in the run up to the dot com bubble that everybody and a brother who could spell Microsoft security or certified engineer got hired. Yeah. Yep. And Java too. Right. And yeah. it was crazy because you had a lot of people in the industry who really didn't know what they were doing. Right. But there was such a huge demand. And I, I wonder if that's part of what we're seeing now. You know, everybody's forecasting a huge shortage of security talent. What are they, you know, I, I keep, I keep reading the same thing and I wonder what are they going to do? <laughs> you know, what is, what is all this security talent going to do? Because I, I yeah. often think that a lot of our problem is not necessarily, uh, it, it, you know, bear with me for a second, right? But I almost think that security, the way we talk about security like that is almost like a blinky box. Like it's just add more crap on top of it. And sometimes that crap is people. Right. Rather than designing it right in the first place. So you got to have somebody to design it right. Yeah. And keep in mind, most of the time you're walking into a pre-existing situation. Absolutely. So you've got to rebuild the plane in flight. Right? Absolutely. And if the average tenure of a CISO is two, two and a half years, you're constantly inheriting somebody else's design. Right. And so, how long does it take? How long does it take to re re-engineer and re-implement things? It's probably longer than the average tenure of a CISO. Absolutely. Which, which means you know it's it's almost a miracle if it ever actually happens. Which to me, I mean, a little bit off topic shows me that, you know, to part of the, part of what I think make people successful in the CISA role is the ability to actually focus and get big projects done. But I think that's rare. Yeah. You know, especially when they're distracted by the new breach of the day or the new distraction of the day. Right. But, you know, back to that point, what I think is going to happen is likely um, salaries are going to start rising and you're going to get probably a lot of talent moving around, which is going to, again, reset people knowing what they're doing or walking into a cold environment that they don't know anything about. And that's six months to a year to get their arms around the environment. And I don't know if that helps anybody, but it, it helps people getting a higher salary, which, you know, I certainly don't begrudge anyone that, but, or we're going to get a lot of people coming into the industry who are brand new, probably not very well trained uh, and certainly don't have a lot of experience. And I don't begrudge them, but they need to be mentored and get experience. And if we have a shortage of good people, uh, it's going to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. So we're back to blinky boxes and consultants. Right. Um, but it's all the little decisions every day that add up. Yes. Yes. But but not necessarily by information security people. True. And and so it, it seems to me that not only do we need to get better within our you know, industry and infosec, but we also need to figure out how to help the broader IT industry. And I, I, I kind of goes back to the concept of the design pattern because I really think that just, you know, anecdotally, based on uh, observational experience, we have lots of people designing things by the seat of their pants. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, going back to that... I don't know that anybody – everybody has a different need, right? Everybody has a different – now, we're yeah. moving to this cloud architecture, which may normalize some of this. Yeah, I was thinking the same. Cloud may be an opportunity. Um, 
but I don't know that we've got this accepted system of the way you do things. Well, one, you, you know, you go back to, uh, your concept of engineering. I mean, there are codes, there are building codes that people have to conform to. Mm-hmm. We don't have that in the IT industry. Uh, I mean, you may have some regulatory environment that may have some influence and, you know, a compliance environment, but nothing like a, you know, a code sign off from a building inspector. And I'm not saying I want that either. Don't get me wrong, but that drives a lot of that. Hey, we know this will get signed off by right. code. You know, we know the QSA will like this kind of thing, but it's also something that, Security is evolving so quickly, and the threats and the defenses are evolving so quickly, you almost inevitably have to bolt onto an existing environment. How often do you build a net new enterprise environment with enough budget to really build IT security up front? It's rare. So I don't know. It's a tough problem. But, you know, one thing that's going way back to something we were talking about earlier about segmentation, you know, here's a philosophical question for you. Who should run the firewalls? Network guys? Security guys? Depends, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's 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 a trade-off there. Network guys are, are there to keep the network up and running. And of course, they care about security, but it's secondary to uptime. Right. Um, security guys are the other way around. They are there to protect the environment, and uptime is secondary. Or I should say agile... Rollout is secondary. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting philosophical debate, I think, for most companies. So what you're saying is we need like a DevOpsy <laughs> firewall network engineer kind no, of No, what I'm saying is security guys should run the firewalls and, and <laughs> Okay. Because for lots of reasons, and, and I'm sure that I'll get some hate tweets or hate mail over this, but one thing I found is that if security guys run the firewall, it gives them a very, very good a chance of catching projects before they escape. If they've got their firewalls down tight, things can't just sneak out onto the network from from a services standpoint. Yeah, that's very true. But you have to have very responsive, very good firewall admins, and most businesses won't tolerate how long it takes to get things done properly. Mm-hmm. And you know, suddenly you've got VPs of business lines calling CIOs going, why can't I get my firewall rule in tomorrow? Right. So, Just a button they have to push. Right. Why can't we get this done? Who do I need to call? Right. Who do I need to escalate this to? This is unacceptable. So it takes a great deal of discipline right. in an organization to do that. Uh, and certainly I've been on both sides of that. And you've got to have a thick skin, I think, to to stand up to a lot of the business pressure. And by the way, you, you know, again, security is there to facilitate the business. So it's a difficult – security shouldn't be the ones who are saying no. It should be the business culture and the executives who have set policy that say no. And security is there to facilitate and enforce it. Yeah. I mean it does, it does seem like if you have a, a situation where you've got your firewall admins doing business or doing a battle with your executives, you're, you're, you've, you've kind of got a dysfunctional situation. But it's going to happen all the time, I think. Well, probably so. But at the end of the day, like you said, it was those very executives who asked the firewall admins maybe to do their, you know, to do their maybe bidding. their leadership did. Well, yes. Yeah. You know, it also comes down to: Are you willing to, you know, stand in the way of business to slow things down enough 
to do with Ryway. Because if you're too slow, this is what causes Shadow IT to form. Mm -hmm. And especially with Cloud, it's real easy for Shadow IT to form. Yeah. Well, not only that, I mean, there's just the pragmatic issue of, you know, if if the business needs to move that fast right. to remain competitive, which, you know, there's a whole other debate there about whether or not that's true. But, mm -hmm. you know, assuming it is, um, you know, you have to have, you need to have a business left to protect. Right. <laughs> so, you know, in my mind, it's probably better for security to have a seat at the table, even if they don't win every battle, because at least they know what's going on. Right. You know, I, I, I remember a couple of years back, I walked into a customer who had no Wi-Fi. They had no corporate Wi-Fi. And so what everybody was doing was hotspots on their phone. And I looked at it and said, well, you're not really doing yourself any favor here because if you at least provided the Wi-Fi services, you could at least monitor and control it. As opposed to now, you have no control over these, in essence, Network bridging coming into your environment. Right. Um, but I don't know that a lot of people think about it that way. Uh, you know, people are going to, this is the fundamental problem. People are going to find a way to do their job as they are incentivized to do. True. And if you have too many roadblocks, they'll find a way around you. And, and more than likely, their boss will support that. So it's a difficult balance. So I don't know if we've, really made a point on segmentation uh, other than I think it's an incredibly useful tool and I think it's really important to challenge your assumptions on segmentation. Are you truly segmented? How do you know? Yeah. And well, the reason I wanted to bring it up is, um, you know, the, the context is Dave Kennedy runs a, a group or a company that does penetration testing and, I would, I would call it the big boy kind of penetration testing. Who who are not just going to run a vulnerability scanner and give you a report, but the you know the ones who will actually get in and change the background on your CEO's PC. You know that that kind of that kind of engagement. Um, and his point was, you know these these uh, unsegmented or improperly segmented networks make their job just extremely easy. Yeah, and so it means it's real easy for the bad guys. Yep, and it matches, uh, it maps very well to what I've seen, and uh, and also to a lot of the stories we've talked about in the past. And so it's it just seems like an extraordinarily pervasive problem that as an industry we don't have a handle on, and um, somehow some way we need we need to get a bit better. And I think we also you know we need to start looking for those opportunities. The, you know, the, the asymmetric opportunities to gain an advantage, right? And so, In what sense? Um, so that we're not trying to f constantly look for the, the, the next blinky box right. to go and address a particular problem. We need to design and implement systems that are you know, more intrinsically robust, yeah, I agree. I mean, we were involved with, I don't think it's any secret, and I, I think statute of limitations passed on this. So uh, when I worked at ISS, we built a brand new headquarters. And so we got to design the network from the ground up. And we added a great deal of segmentation, much to the chagrin of some folks, but much to the happiness uptime of others. And 
my the rumor mill that will neither be confirmed nor denied is that when IBM bought it, they ripped out everything I built and put in a flat network. So there you go. What's that tell you? No comment. <laughs> so um, I think you're right. I think in many ways, manageability is winning out over security and that manageability just helps the bad guys. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I th here's my, this is, this is descending into the bowels of risk management, right? Right. Because, well, you know, can, I was just thinking about something. I don't lose this thought because sure. I was just going to say, we were talking earlier about solved problems in engineering. Mm -hmm. The difference is that engineers don't have a risk tolerance meter. They're, they're, the risk is always set at, the risk tolerance is always set. Businesses have a variable amount of risk tolerance for cost. Uh, that's true, but I, I, I cannot help but think that they don't fully under this is where I was going to go. Yeah. I don't think businesses fully understand the risks that they're accepting. And and so I hear constantly I, I see this and I hear this both um you know from acquaintances and with the the stories that we've talked about and um you know other sources that I I really can't talk about that an organization will make, you know, a, what they consider a, a, a risk trade-off decision, mm -hmm. right? And it's we're going to implement a, an unsegmented network or we're going to allow our vendors to access this application because that's, you know, and, and you know, yes, we know that there's a potential for something to go wrong. But in the back of their mind, they don't actually think that, anything's going to go wrong. And so when it does go wrong, they're not, the, the thought isn't, oh, well, that didn't work out though. You know, there's no work, feedback loop. Didn't work out the way I thought it was, right. you know, no, it's what happened. How could this possibly happen? Whereas when you're talking about engineering disasters, it's usually very clear, visceral cause and effect. Right. Interesting. So we're not learning from our mistakes. I, I don't think so. I don't think so, and I don't think we are consciously understanding the risks that we accept when we make IT decisions. And I think a big reason for that is that the IT and this is I, I, honestly, I think it's just a lack of imagination and creativity on the part of the IT people who are designing these environments. And so you got you know you just. You know the BS bubbles up through the through the layers of management, and you know, did you account for all of the the the, the things that could go wrong? Yes, yes, sir, I did. Really? So the executives don't know to ask, <laughs> right? Or what to ask? And they and the the people who design it don't know they're they're ignorant themselves hmm. because this is not a well trodden science like uh you know like like you know bridge design right and it's continuing to change you know now we've got software defined networking coming in yes you know which absolutely is, we're barely caught up to cloud from a security perspective <laughs> and virtualized environments right uh, i remember having a conversation with a customer who wanted a firewall that would respect and adjust to software defined networking so when he stands up a network it in his software defined networking 
architecture, it automatically would reprovision a firewall to do what it was supposed to do. And I was trying to explain to him why that was a bad idea. And I basically was talking to a brick wall on that one. Yeah. But I think that kind of goes back to the, you know, the, the point that the people just don't understand in general, lots of people don't. And by the way, I'm not different there, right? Yeah. You know, I, I, there are limitations to the ability of, you know, my ability to foresee how things that I would design could fail. Yeah, right? ditto. So really we're pointing out a problem that we don't necessarily have a solution for, but we know we need to acknowledge that it's a problem. But again, I, you know, I, I can't help but think this goes back to that damn design pattern. Okay. Well, those solution. design patterns are being established by the vendors. They're the ones putting uh, out deployment guides. the problem. Right. right. But, but in all seriousness, they're the ones who are yeah. educating us Absolutely. on how to deploy their blinky boxes and build out their network environments. Absolutely. You get a nice handy Microsoft AD deployment guide. Right. And Microsoft certifications and Microsoft testing that all reinforces this is how you build out and deploy AD. Absolutely. So who's security to come challenge that? Uh <laughs> Then you've got Cisco saying, this is how you deploy networks. Right. And, and everybody, but here's the thing, right? Everybody's optimized to give, you know, everybody has an agenda behind whatever they provide, you know, whether it's to optimize the amount of, um, you know, support services that you're going to have to pay for or the, the number of firewalls that you need to buy or the number of routers that you need to buy or mm -hmm. whatever, whatever it is, everybody has any either explicit or implicit agenda behind, you know, behind that. And then, you know, we saw this in, uh, I don't remember which case it was at, at this point. Right. But, you know, we've seen, how many times have we seen a breach and then you have some, you know, well, some some security vendor come out and say, well, you know, if they they, they didn't buy enough right. of our security products, yeah, they had our AV on the, on on their workstations, but they didn't have our advanced malware protection running because you know everybody knows our AV doesn't actually, you know, block malware. You have to have something else for that. So, um, you know, and I guess to that point. It's like a it's like a feedback loop from hell. Yeah, it's you know it's, I've stated this quote many times that the vendors define the problem as the as the problem they can solve. And I had a conversation with a sandboxing malware detection system representative recently, and I'll leave their company name out of it. But in this particular particular instance, their sandboxes are static in the loadout and build. So they may detect malware, but that malware may not actually be able to land on your environment because of the patch level. In other words, they have a static patch level and your environment is constantly patching. So that particular piece of malware may be targeting a vulnerability that's no longer present in your environment. Interesting. And so I was having that discussion and this particular vendor representative got very defensive and thought I was poking at them competitively and thought I was asking for dynamic customer-built sandboxes, which one of their competitors built, and got very defensive about why that doesn't work and that I didn't know what I was talking about and that I should not <laughs> have asked for that because I don't understand the implications of what I'm talking about, which, by the way, 
Um, yeah, I have a little pride and ego. That's not a good way to get into a discussion with me. That's going to go well. Um, so if you're going to try to sell something to Mr. Kellett. Don't tell me I'm stupid. There you go. That's, um, you can educate me respectfully, but don't tell me I'm stupid. Um, and I tried to talk him down saying, whoa, I'm not trying to poke holes. What I'm trying to do is educate the rest of my team as to when we get an alert, because they don't know what this means. When they get an alert that malware is detected, they're assuming that means that it automatically could have executed effectively on the endpoint. Right. There's more work to be done before, right. before and, we freak out. And what I was trying to do is say, wouldn't it be interesting if you could pull in patch information on that particular vulnerability mm-hmm. and tell me what patch level I need or even go so far as to integrate with my SCCM or patch management solution and tell me if that particular host that's targeted is already patched against that vulnerability. But we can never have that conversation because they got defensive. Right. And it's somewhat reminiscent of this conversation. We're having trouble fixing the real problems we have because every vendor has their own Kool-Aid they're drinking. Right. And then we at, at you know have to figure it out amongst ourselves – but, again, the source of truth and knowledge coming into our industry is from vendors. Yeah. Yep. And that is difficult and frustrating, which is why I go back to, hey, great, we've got pwned to own conversations. Now let's set that up with all the vendors' gear and see what works and doesn't work. I think that's a fantastic idea. We, You know, we should we should think about a, a talk, like a conference talk. And I, yeah. I don't know. It would be interesting to see what, how we could fill, you know, an hour. But – you know that's a that's a really good challenge for the industry i think yeah. because you know look i don't know about the you know, the people here listening to the show right but after almost every major breach there are uh most of the major vendors security vendors will host webinars to to kind of replay the attack that happened on company xyz right. and that you know they've gotten a copy of the malware or they've written some malware that it behaves exactly like it and they will show you how their piece of security technology would have caught it or blocked it or mitigated it in some right. way right and you know nobody seems to ask the question you know would it have blocked it you know three weeks ago or a month ago. I would ago. love to take the status, the, the, the point in time from the security controls from the day before hacking team data got leaked and take all the zero days that came out of hacking team and see what actually is effective against well-run, appropriately set up, no BS instances of security technology that's pitched against this stuff. Yeah. And see what works and what doesn't. And then re- rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Because all different types of attacks, everybody's security technology has sweet spots. And, you know, I want to know over time who is effective. In a, in a transparent, industry-open way. Because I think customers know this based on their own technology, but they're not running multiple versions of, of competitive technology in a controlled environment. They're, you know, they're running... Hey, my McAfee stopped X. Okay, it didn't stop Y. I'm not picking on McAfee. I'm just using that as an example. Um, but they're not Intel also security to you. No. <laughs> That's right. But they're not also running semantic and trend micro in the same environment and testing against the same same pieces of malware. Right. This is a really expensive, difficult proposition. It's probably a full time job for somebody. But I do think it would be. What's that whole cyber UL thing now? Right? <laughs> yeah. 
So, I mean, I do think that there is something to be said for that. And, but as soon as you do it, politics are coming to play yeah. because you've got everybody and their brother already trying to do stuff like NSS and other stuff like that. And you see how that goes when people start nitpicking how they do their testing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you didn't configure it right. You, right. You, you, you didn't follow our best practices guide. Let, let, let us have our professional services people come out. And- exactly. And as far as I know, some of those guys are already actually – I mean this probably is not a unique idea. Somebody might already be trying this exact thing, but yeah, I, I would imagine it's um, it, it's you know it, thinking about it from the the cyber UL thing. It's probably more like the cyber consumer reports, right? Right, because um, you you almost it, it needs to be funded from outside. I mean, probably funded by the people who would be buying. The challenge is though, as soon as a new threat comes out, a new attack comes out, a new version comes out, it's all yeah, crap. It's a very expensive proposition. Yeah. It, it, so I don't know. I just think it would be an interesting point in time for this for these folks, you know, who say we would have stopped XYZ attack if you had only run us. I want to prove it. Yeah. In in a you know credible third party way. I seems like a very good idea. Um, but probably not practical, unfortunately. Yeah. So anyhow, well, well, we burned a lot of time on that topic. Yeah. Let's, let's move on to, uh, we have a couple stories that we want to talk about. Yeah. We, we we're 50 minutes in on our, on our actual recording, just so you know. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, our first story, speaking of, uh, well, whatever, <laughs> it comes from, uh, comes from for, uh, fortune.com and the title is, Oh boy, um, hackers give up when they go up against a cybersecurity company. You can't see me, but I'm just shaking my head. Yeah, with, yeah he's with my he's he's clearly gotten a headache now. Face palm. So uh, so apparently, apparently, uh, the CEO of CrowdStrike, Mr. George Kurtz, uh, is. Declaring victory with one of their with, with defending one of their customers who apparently was having some uh, some significant problems with the um, uh, with one of the panda named hacking groups uh, Hurricane Panda. There you go. Just uh, if if you ever want to come up with um, you know a, a new APT name you just come up with some random noun and put it in front of the word panda and off you go isn't so, this how you know the military used to come up with code names for a while for operations I think so like angry panda I think so I think that was the planned invasion of Canada <laughs> never well, executed you know, well you know you, you gotta have like you gotta have you know plans for every eventuality right? that's true so anyway um so apparently, uh, one of the customers was having problems with his APT group, uh, which would later be identified as Hurricane Panda. And, uh, CrowdStrike stepped in to save the day. They installed their cloud-based sensors, right? Cloud-based sensors on their network. The Hurricane Panda team saw that the CrowdStrike cloud-based sensors were on the network and they took their ball and went home, and so now 
we, uh, you know, now we have this heroic story of triumph. And all I can say is, I sincerely hope that CrowdStrike is not the next hacking team. Or H.B. Gary. Or H.B. Gary. Um, I mean, this just seems like a, a bad, bad form. I mean, I understand you're a small company. You got to make a lot of noise. Uh, but it just I'm, seems like bad I'm form. pretty sure they're never going to hire me after I say what I'm about to say. But I think that this was – if I worked at CrowdStrike right now and I was in any way in charge of trying to defend CrowdStrike itself, I would be very afraid right now. This is like ringing the dinner bell. Oh, yeah. For hackers to come go, oh, what's that article? You said your database is hack-proof in your marketing? <laughs> Unhackable. Oh, no, no. Not so much, Mr. Peter. So this this borders on irresponsible to me. Yeah. And I look, I yep. get it. CEOs, especially of startups, first and foremost are sales guys. Yeah. They're not IT security experts. Let's get that straight. This is what drives me crazy, by the way, when CEOs are brought to testify on some technical topic in Congress. It should be like their lead engineer or something, not the CEO. Mm-hmm. Anyway, off topic. So this is a hell of a sales piece for CrowdStrike. But all it's done is just wave the red flag. Oh, yeah. Now, I certainly understand the concept of if you raise the bar of pain high enough, some hacking will go elsewhere if you're if you're too hard of a target. But we've also seen an evolution of targeted, purposeful, intentional hacks. Not just random, hey, who can I pick up for my botnet? Right. So in nation-state level capabilities, which I'm not saying in nation-state, I'm saying nation-state level capabilities. If they're coming after your company for a specific reason, just having some deterrence out there, making yourself, you know, putting some bars on the window so the bad guy goes someplace else, I don't think is much of a deterrent. So why would a hacker run away because CrowdStrike is there? There's almost no consequence for them to get caught and, and attribution to be laid at their feet. Yeah. If I'm in North Korea or China or Russia or Eastern Bloc or whatever, all this has done is made my life a little more difficult potentially, assuming that their gear works well. And I don't know how well their gear works one way or the other. But why would I run away? You know, the, the, that thought crossed my mind too. Um, it is It is a bit of a stretch, I think, to assume that um, you know, they, the, the adversary here just took their ball and went home versus decided to go about it a different way. I mean, look, I'm, you, you know, maybe they did, right? I'm not, I'm not disputing that the, that the story here is accurate, right? I'm, I don't know enough. I can't say that it did or did not happen. And, you know, these hackers may very well have seen that CrowdStrike was, installed on the network and you know pulled their stuff and and went home what i'm saying is that if you, like just like you said if there's really no disincentive for them to continue trying different tactics right so well the you know based on what crowdstrike does if i've got some zero days i don't want to get them burned i may not show them to crowdstrike and that may be what that may be the point here right yeah 
But I still think that this article was reckless. Yeah. I I think this puts their company in far more risk than it does increase their sales. Well, we'll see. I mean, it, it is an interesting time because they just got that $100 million funding from Google and they just seem to be riding the rocket ship right now. Yeah, I mean – don't I don't I don't wish them any ill. I want them to be successful. We need tools, but I, I mean I've been at a couple of startups and I've seen CEOs do something very similar. So maybe I just have a little bit of bitterness, but I just don't think this was a good smart thing. I mean, I think if you want to be a really effective, sharp, well-respected, trusted security advisor, you don't go trumpeting yourself on the front pages of articles. Yeah. yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. Who was it with the Sony article not so long ago that said, oh, we met with them and they were really terrible. Oh, oh yes. I forget right now. Yeah. I mean, that was one where you just lost a lot of ethical clout when you do that. Right. So the only thing that I think CrowdStrike has done for themselves now is just set themselves up for a hacker or a hacking team to go, oh, really? Yeah. And prove them wrong. I, it just – it seems to me – now, I guess maybe this is why I'm not a CEO, <laughs> you know, and 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 he is, you know. I, you know yeah, I mean um, he's a successful – you know, he was at Intel Security for a long time, so he gave him He was the CTO, in fact. Yeah, yeah I mean – I mean that, certainly, certainly a smart guy. It's and easy so, for us to armchair it. Yeah. And, it, I mean it may, it may very well be uh, part of a, a more – a more strategic play, um, but I just find the I find being understated um, a little more palatable, you know. And and, and I just I, I as a security person, I find I find this one worrisome if I were in their shoes, and number two, I find it a little um, offensive. Isn't the right word, but I, I just find it a little gaudy. I guess. Yeah. It probably is how, you know, folks who are in the Navy SEALs feel when their missions are being discussed on the news or talked right. about by the president. And, <laughs> yes. you know, we, we we want to be quiet professionals, and this is not quiet. Right. You know, it's it's a balance on this show. There's so many things from our experience that would v- add value to our conversation, but we can't talk about because it would be unethical to our employers or to the people involved. And it's not because we want to be – you know, cool and secretive. It's just not appropriate. It's not. So we have to abstract a lot or we have to, you know, be very delicate in how we talk about things. And that's, that's just out of respect for our employers and about also maintaining, I hope maintaining our credibility and our ethical standing with future people, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and also not just, and it's not just about self-serving. It's also being the type of individuals we want to be, which I, I like to think that we try to do things with a high level of ethics. Uh, we're certainly not perfect, but anyway. Anyhow, moving on to our next story, which comes from the that, trip. That's what happens when Jerry gets bored tri- with my point. Yeah. Snooze. Like, Whatever. Shut up, Andy. Snooze. Uh, next Bad radio. One, <laughs> next one comes from Tripwire, and the title is Fishing Up 74% in the Second Quarter of 2015 Reveals Infoblock's DNS Threat Index. Uh, so th- this is a, a summary of a report released by Infoblocks and another company called IID. And uh, 
I think it's interesting in that it kind of points to a macro level trend that, that highlights, you know, we're dealing with an increase in, in uh, phishing attacks. Right. And, and so and we'll get into all of the details of their um, methodology here, but, you know, basically their, their point is that there's a, kind of a, a cyclical pattern of, you know, the actors out in the world uh, where, where they, I think they call them uh, um, farming and, and harvesting or something like that, planting and harvesting uh, where they will, you know, that they, they will go off and kind of build up their infrastructure for a period of time. And then you see evidence of that infrastructure being used. And so they're, you know, I, I think they're they can kind of point out that in the I think the th- last part of last year, in the first quarter of 2015, you didn't see a, uh, as much fishing activity. But the story is that they were kind of building up their, you know, their their environment, and then apparently the, you know, they they let loose the the dogs of war, the dogs of cyber, the dogs of cyber war, yes. <laughs> um, and and so that kind of portends that you know th- this is um you know th- this is a uh, um some something that changes over time right and it's going to change based on uh attributes that we don't necessarily understand right or 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 factors that we don't understand so but and, i think it's fair to say that fishing continues to be a threat and it should be taken seriously. And it's becoming more so. Yeah. Right. So, um, which, which kind of contrasts with one of the reports we talked about last time, or I don't know if we talked about it or not, but you know, there was a report recently about how the internet's getting safer. What? Yeah. Yeah. Because the internet is, the internet is growing at a faster pace than the rate of growth of crime. So we're now rating internet safety on per capita basis. Uh, it was a it was an odd read. Yeah, we didn't cover it on our show. No. Or I would have remembered picking that to pieces. Yeah. Anyway, watch out for them fishes. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I, I guess going back to the reason I wanted to include it, I, I think this is an area where we don't another area where we don't have a great you know, a great solution, you know, I'm sure and, there's a blinky box you can buy. Uh, well, probably. Right. But, you know, we, we talk about, Oh, we got to have better, um, better user awareness training. And, but uh, you know, I, I look at, look at the, look at the tactics that some of these people are using. And by the way, we talk about nation state, you know, actors and nation state level stuff, Right. Nation state level activity is becoming kind of the norm for everybody because right. the tactics are out there. They're like open source now. Yeah, there's nothing exclusive about thank some you, of this. you know, thank you, hacking team. Thank you, you know, to all of the these security reports that are and, that are published. And I don't want to blame just hacking team. I mean, there's plenty of underground oh, environments that share and sell this information. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that that goes on. This is why I've always had a challenge when everybody says it's nation state level. No, it's not. 
There's nothing I've seen thus far except maybe Stuxnet level stuff that has to have been nation state. Right. Yep. So uh, this is another area where I think we as an industry need to figure out a, a more systemic way to address it because it's, it is trending in a direction that is, you know, it, it's getting out of hand. I mean, mm -hmm. it's already out of hand, but it's getting worse. So moving on uh, to our next story, which comes from Trend Micro's blog. And uh, this one scares me. The title's Angular Exploit Kit Used to Find and Infect POS Systems. Think about that for a minute. Think about the implications of what that title says to you. It's ugly. Right? I, I'm, I'm going back to a barter-based economy. <laughs> I'll, oh. I'll, I'll trade you this pile of guns for an iPad. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even going to get into the details of Angular Exploit Kit. The thing that How I wanted to – How many apps can I buy for a roll of toilet paper? <laughs> How how did we get to a point where exploit kits on POS terminals are a thing? How how did we get there? You realize that exploit kits generally come from browsing the internet, right? <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Well, you know, we've got the Internet of Things now, so I, I, I'm just going to throw buzzwords into I'm something. speechless. I it's what, why do people rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why are people going over P after POSs? I know, I, I get it. I, I know, I but it's it. crazy. Why are people browsing the internet from a POS terminal? <laughs> well, union demand. <laughs> it, I don't get it. Can someone help me? Well, okay, so. Tell me why. But are we saying that this is the only way the angler is getting on there is by inbound browsing? Well, I mean, that's what that's for, how that's for, how I exploit kits generally work. I know, but I'm digging into the details now. As as far as I know, yes, it's it's being served up um, on you know, malvertising sites and and related uh, strategic compromises. And it's, I guess it's not only looking directly to see if the system that you're browsing is a pause terminal. It's apparently looking on systems on your local network to see if they are, which also is a horrible idea, by the way. <laughs> but Thinking also, segmentation. Yeah. We should talk about that. Yeah. But, you know, nowadays with the you know evolution of all these random payment taking systems, Square, whatnot, a lot of people are making their tablets or their laptops or whatever double duty. That's, oh, their, that's their, a good point. Their main worker machine, plus they take payments on it. So I don't know if that is what's driven this, but I can't tell you how often now I encounter an iPad that's a payment device. Now, this obviously is not necessarily targeting iPads, right. but I'm seeing that evolution happen. Now, that may have nothing to do with this, and I could be just filling airtime. So – I, I'm, I'm having a, I'm having, I'm having a real hard time with this. I need it goes a, back to we shouldn't even let POSs be able to do web traffic. I agree. See, that's. I mean, they usually they have to talk to a web-based API or something like that to to. You know, I should say web traffic out to the. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you should not. You should not be going to CNN.com from your pause terminal. I'm sorry. 
buy an iPad. You know, you're just a luddite. <laughs> so, I, I'm 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 having a really you just don't understand what millennial kids need. I'm having a really difficult time with this concept. Why this is a problem does not make sense to me. They need it for competitive reasons to attract the talent. Working oh, retail. Is that why? All right. Listen, unions say if they can't hit Facebook every 10 minutes, that's a violation of their human rights. <laughs> oh, man. And you should see what Twitter, the the velocity and the timing on Twitter updates and Instagram. You don't even understand. I, no, I don't. You're too old to understand. I, I am. I am. So, so, so the last story. If anyone's still listening, the last story we have, and it hasn't just fast forwarded to the outtakes because that's what we know you guys all listen for now. I'm not even sure that I'm gonna. After this, I don't even know if I can muster an outtake. Now he's gonna listen to the show then. Uh, so, so anyway, the the final story we have for, from tonight comes from WeLiveSecurity.com, which I think is the ESET. Yes, the ESET. Uh, blog and the title is new report explains golf between security experts and non-experts so um i I wanted to give them a little bit of kudos because uh, they pointed it out to me but the actual report is much more interesting than the we live security blog post uh, which which kind of goes into lots of granular detail about the way in which security experts versus non-experts think about different attributes of security. Now, where did this report come from originally? Who put it together? Um, let's see. Google, so it's uh, Google, basically. Right. right. Three guys from Google. Yeah. Looks like this was originally done for a, a Usenic Association yeah. uh, paper. Right. Right. So they, they interviewed a couple of hundred different people, both on the expert side and on the non-expert side. Um, in some cases, I think there were they run into a bit of a law of small number problems. I think uh, their number of expert interviews were 40 in, in certain cases versus 200, 230 or 240 for the non-expert side. So that gets into some some issues. But um, I thought it was interesting that uh, the, the non-experts seem to be pretty skeptical about certain things like up keeping software updated. Yeah. And and so the takeaway for, for me, for everybody, is this is a really good opportunity, I think, with the caveat, this is a survey and surveys are bad and blah, blah, <laughs> blah. Um it's a it's a good opportunity to understand that there is a difference between how we think and how um, you know the you know the average muggles. person muggles yes okay how muggles think how yes. muggles think yes, yes. fine <laughs> <laughs> so to me I agree with you but what this tells me is we're doing a bad job of educating the average citizen on yes. best practices. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, th- so- or, or is it that the best practices are also evolving rapidly and that the average citizen who does not live and breathe in this environment uh, just doesn't have the bandwidth to keep up with? 
I think there's, I think it's all of the above. I'll give you an example. AV usage was interesting. Yes. I was, that's where I was going to go. Okay. I'll let you go. No, no, it's, it's, um, I think it was, uh, you know, a little under 10% of the security experts believe AV is, uh, you know, is, is a quality control. And, uh, it was, you know, almost 50% of the non. So in my mind, you know, we went to, from a point where the muggles never ran AV. We educated them on the need to run AV. They ran it. We've been successful in that. Now the industry has evolved past AV and, and, you know, it takes time for the average citizen who has a thousand other things to worry about to catch up to this mindset that we know and live. Right. Um, and it's interesting because you look at uh, the, the security folks have already moved on from AV. In fact, the amount of people running AV uh, appears to be less for security experts than non-experts, if I'm reading this correctly. Um, well, it's the top three things that you do yeah. to stay safe online. So I, I don't know that that means they don't run it. Sure. It's just they've deprioritized it. So expecting muggles to keep up with a fast-moving environment I think is difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and you know, they, they, there's also an interesting one in there about how, uh, well, as I mentioned, they the Muggles, to use your word, <laughs> um, are are skeptical about patches. Now, let me be clear: some of my best friends are Muggles, so I'm not. <laughs> okay. Which is why, for all the controversy of automatic updates coming down with Windows 10, I actually think it will be a net benefit. Now, net benefit by taking away some freedom, which as a libertarian, that bothers me. But then again, you don't have to load Windows 10. But I think for the average person, for just updates to just happen for them, they don't have to worry about it, is a good thing. Oh, it, it, clearly so. And clearly you have the so. option of going and turning it off or deferring updates. And that right. Kind of thing. But I, I, think it's, I think it's interesting just the thought process is interesting, right? The the difference in thinking is I, is where the interesting the yeah. interest for me lies. And you know that the average expert thinks that password managers are a good idea, whereas it's you know on on the non expert side, it's they're not a good idea. And you want to have a you know I, even even today, like you, recently, I've had people who you know. I don't know how they know that I'm in security, uh, you know. Anyhow, we'll we'll want to we'll want to you know pick my brain about some security thing, and they'll tell me their secret. You know, I, I want to sh- tell you what I do to stay safe online. You know, I I I pick a word, right, and I and I substitute some of the letters for numbers. They're the only people to ever think of this. I know, and and. Uh, and they think they're on to something really, really special there. Fifteen years ago, sure. <laughs> uh, but this is this. You know, I think that I think that the trouble is that we've we've designed systems. You know that that are uh, you know kind of require people to, to to think in a way that they're not apt to think. Well, this is the fundamental problem in why social engineering is so effective. Yeah. The bad guys use our weaknesses against us. Right. Of the average person. Right. And we who live and breathe this every day 
can take those mental exercises in stride, whereas the average person's got a lot more to worry about and think about and doesn't have the mental bandwidth to be at the level we're at, but then we don't have the mental bandwidth to be at the level of their expertise. Right. You can't be an expert in everything. Right. And this is the fundamental problem that we're facing right now. Agreed. One of one of the fundamental problems. <laughs> oh, I agree, and I think I think even many security experts themselves are not. I mean, I, I think there's 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 a um, a flaw in the thinking that security experts are doing it right. Yeah, you know, and that's that's not true. You know, that it's never been true. Some of the some of the worst nastiest breaches and outbreaks I've worked on involved security people. Well, sure. They've got the keys to the castle. Right. You know? And there's an arrogance that comes with it. Exactly. Yeah. I, and I think it... Actually, I think the arrogance plays into it more than than anything. And, and I, I, you know, I do wonder how many security people don't run antivirus because they don't... You know, they... They, they think they've they seen have, all the tricks. Yeah. I have magic... Cyber dust that surrounds my <laughs> my computer. <laughs> Don't snort the magic cyber dust. It won't end well. Oh, uh, well. So, so, uh, so we're not going to DEFCON. We're not going to Black Hat. Nope. Or B-Sides Las Vegas. Or B-Sides Las Vegas. Why? Because we're lame. That's right. But we are putting on a podcast. That's right. And we'll be at DerbyCon. And you're going to... HTCIA? Yes. I can't. I've got to go to Michigan to be in a family photo. Don't ask. Just not. Can you just well. like send them a prop or something? I thought I could, yeah. Cardboard stand up. Just there you go. Just picture that. Photoshop. I mean, it's about as much of my personality as you're going to get anyway. It's about the same. <laughs> so, no, I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll be down at the HTCIA conference, uh, which is running from August 30th through September 2nd in mm -hmm. beautiful Orlando, Florida. Uh, and then we will we will both be at DerbyCon. Yes, which is uh, going to be epic. Perhaps coming from different parts of the country. Yeah, it does appear that I will uh, I will be uh, coming from New York probably. Oh, that sucks. But we'll have some new swag. That is secret swag. That's true. Speaking of which, uh, our Patreon donors are going to be the first recipients of our new secret swag. That is true. And it, they were, by the way, those were supposed to have gone out this week. However, Amazon messed up uh, an order of packing material. And oh. So we're, we're, uh, we're, I think we're going to get the replacement tomorrow. So they should go out this week. And it's important that you ship live kittens appropriately. True. So That's very true. Enjoy your live kittens, everyone. <laughs> And uh, but but seriously, thank you to those who have donated to our Patreon campaign. Thank you very much. If you are interested in supporting the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash defensive sec or uh, you can find the link off of our website at defensivesecurity.org, where you will also find links to the stories that we've talked about tonight and on other shows. Um, if you are interested in following the podcast on Twitter, by the way, I, I want to say this. Twitter's a really great place for news and for, for keeping up with, uh, you know, with, with the latest uh, cyber news. Although it is, uh, it can be a bit of a time sink. Yeah. 
Um, so you kind of have to figure, you know, figure the balance out there. But it is, I think, a very useful way to get involved in the community if you're not already and uh, if you're so inclined. Anyway, you can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Callet on Twitter at Lurg. That's L-E-R-G. I'm sure there's an L-U-R-G out there somewhere. That's Probably. Getting lots of followers. That's, cool. that's why you have more followers than I do. They're <laughs> spelling my Twitter handle wrong. Probably so. I feel much better now. Probably so. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, but I would not recommend it. it. It's a bunch of crap that I tweet out. Uh, at Malicious Link. And uh, with that, I think we'll talk again next time. Uh, we'll, we will be back to our, uh, uh, you know, over Skype setup. <laughs> well, this was fun, though. It was different. It's, it's, uh, well, hopefully everybody enjoyed it. And, Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, we, we did this because Jerry's been woefully bad in keeping up with his movies. So I had to make him watch something. It's because I have kids and dogs and cats and. Uh, yeah it's true and, and lots of excuses mm-hmm. that I could just keep going on with nobody cares anyway so we should, should we should okay. good night everybody thanks good for night. joining us bye I've noticed that the uh, the Bond villains suffer from the same problem as the uh Star Wars uh, troopers. They can't shoot? They cannot shoot. Well, well they can shoot. They just can't hit. <laughs> they when, can't hit their target. When you're a super spy, though, you, you have like, you know, plus three to bullet evasion. Damn it, my Twitter humor is more important than you driving safely. All right. Well, you want to do it? No, I quit. Okay. Next. <laughs> I'll make your job as difficult as possible then. All right. Here we go. Before I... I should figure out what day it is, though. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.